Kafka has achieved widespread popularity as a distributed queue and event streaming platform, with enterprise adoption and a billion-dollar company, Confluent, built around it. But could there be value in building a new platform from scratch? Red Panda is a streaming platform built to be compatible with Kafka, and it does not require the JVM nor Zookeeper, both of which are dependencies that made Kafka harder to work with than perhaps necessary. Alexander Gallego is a core committer to Red Panda and joins the show to talk about why he started the project and its value proposition. If you'd like to support Software Daily, go to softwaredaily.com and become a paid subscriber. You can get access to ad-free episodes, and it costs $10 a month or $100 per year. Alexander, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You work on Red Panda, which is a, in some ways, a replacement for Kafka. And Kafka is an extremely popular piece of technology. Could you tell me a little bit about your perspective on what the use cases of Kafka are and perhaps what the shortcomings of Kafka are? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So Kafka is typically used to do, it's it's so popular that it's almost synonym with real-time streaming. So for a Twitter, it's being used to feed basically your timeline for ad text is used to not only to record the, the ad impressions and complete, compute click-through rates for, let's say, uh, banks and, and credit card companies. It is used to compute fraud detection in real time and to merge signals, let's say, from your the geolocation of the credit card transaction and like the vendor type and the trust of the network, et cetera. So Kafka is really used not, I wouldn't say it's like per industry, it's more per use case. And I would say it's maybe the most popular message bus in the world right now. And I think what people love about Kafka is that it, it became sort of this like central plug and play system where people can glue together disparate distributed systems and you know have something useful at the at the end of the pipeline. One example that I gave earlier, which was with the fraud detection pipeline, is people typically save the data of the credit card transactions into Kafka, and then they plug in something like Spark streaming, and then they shove that into Elasticsearch. And in very with very few components, you have actually a relatively sophisticated fraud detection pipeline, and so. Kafka is really sort of this central, you know, nervous system for a lot of companies that are doing things in real time. And I could go on and on, but but I would say that's that's sort of the the, the main use of Kafka is to empower businesses to do, you know, real time, add sort of like the real time component to their application, whether it's analytics or notification or fraud detection or advertising. It really sort of spans multiple industries and a lot of use cases. But what are the shortcomings of Kafka? Yeah, so a uh, great question. What what people love about Kafka is is the Kafka API, is the fact that you can, you know, like I mentioned in the use case, you can plug in, you know, three or four components relatively easily and sort of leverage millions of lines of code and this massive and, and vibrant ecosystem, which I call that sort of the Kafka API. But so the, the the shortcomings of Kafka are really about uh, management and, and running Kafka at a scale. So I would say there's probably three big categories where with all of the customers that we interview, that, that they have problems with Kafka. So 
The main one is really operationalizing Kafka at a scale. So Zookeeper is a, is a really difficult system to manage. And Kafka itself is actually also a difficult system to manage. We can get, we can get into that. But that's, that's the first category. And the second category after you pay for the operational complexity of running Kafka, either by outsourcing to a vendor or by hiring distributed system experts or you know, with your customers uh, with, with downtime, the, the second sort of area that, that you know, the, sort of the, the open source system has for improvement is really around performance, which is the, byte, the, the cost per byte to, to run a byte through Kafka is relatively high. And so what, com- what large companies actually end up doing is that in order to keep up with their load, they often have to over-provision by a significant margin, say something like, you know, uh, uh, 100% over-provision. And so 2x the, the amount of hardware needed is not uncommon. Then the last one is, is data safety, which is by default, the, the settings of the Kafka broker. And so Kafka is really, it's, it's a large ecosystem. So without getting too, in too much into details than we can, there are some settings which you might experience data loss. So I would say those are probably the three uh, large categories of kind of improvements and difficulties that people are having. But by and large, I would say just just running Kafka stably at a scale in production, right? Making sure that you know you're getting sort of the predictable latencies and understanding how to handle failure modes of uh, Zookeeper and Kafka when no brokers crash or when you need to do a rolling upgrade. I would say that's sort of the largest area of improvement for the project. So I can agree that those are some shortcomings, particularly over-provisioning and complexity of, of running running Kafka. But you do get a battle-tested piece of software for a mission-critical workload. Why would you use anything but Kafka? Yeah, so I, I think what if Kafka basically just doesn't doesn't deliver on 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 the promises, it's is when people start to have problems with Kafka, right? And so, I, Kafka is a battle-tested system, and I think it's fantastic. I think what Kafka really added to the world was really the API. And let me give an analogy. I think to to help drive the discussion, if you look at the the say SQL as sort of the lingua franca, where you can plug SQL into uh, Cassandra or uh, really even a Snowflake, right? A totally like different uh, semantics. And then also to MySQL and Postgres. In that way, SQL uh, became sort of the way that you interact with a bunch of databases. But there were, you know, improvements on these databases themselves uh, because they didn't deliver on one, you know, vertical or another, right? And so, sort of to to go with this analogy for a second, and then I'll come back into Kafka uh, in just a second. Is the the reason NoSQL kind of be became a thing is because they figured out scalability, right? But now you have new SQL databases like CockroachDB, where they promise both the same semantics that you get with Postgres, but now you get geo-replication and so on. And, and similarly, then for the streaming. I think that the Kafka API, not the implementation itself right now, but just the actual API and the millions of lines of client code that has been written for the enterprises and, and open source systems, that I think is the thing that won in the open source world. And so what we kind of, uh, my angle on it when, when we started this was we can provide a better engine for, for some guarantees. And so a particularly difficult thing to attain with 
a JVM system is flat tail latencies. And you need that kind of predictability for particular use cases. So fraud detection is one where we're seeing some pickup where people expect when you, when you transact a credit card on a web uh, form, you sort of expect to get a text message from Chase or Visa or whoever is your, your, your vendor say like, hey, this credit card transaction is either above a threshold or is coming from a flaky vendor and so on. And so to achieve that with Kafka is relatively expensive for some of our customers. And so they look to us to kind of reduce the hardware footprint, but still deliver on that. And then there's a separate use case in, in Wall Street, which we're finding traction in, which is the sort of post-settlement houses. So you have some hedge funds where they are settling, you know, say a billion dollars in a day or in a week, however long their, their trading period is. And what they demand the most is safety. And so sort of a big improvement that, that we brought onto the Kafka ecosystem was the ability to run workloads safe with, with zero data laws, with a proven protocol. And we'll talk about it in a second. And so for them, they care, you know, they want to leverage the open source ecosystem. They don't want to change their applications, but what they want is sort of a better engine. And so it is true that Kafka is battle tested and it's actually tested, you know, I would say it's the most popular streaming system in the world today by, you know, a large margin, you know, almost like 90% of all the companies that we talk to have either exclusively Kafka or Kafka plus something else. But in a similar way, how people looked for different backend database systems to sort of this SQL layer, we see Red Panda actually enriching the ecosystem for, for some use cases. There are some, some uh, use cases where we compete head to head, but there's also a large non-overlapping set of use cases where we provide different guarantees, like stronger guarantees, for example, around data safety, no gaps in your logs, and a different consistency on the data replication protocol and, and lower tail latencies. So I think when, when you add richness to, to, to Kafka and you sort of decouple the technical implementation of Apache Kafka itself from the API that all of these clients are using, you actually have a much richer picture of what the streaming landscape looks like. And if you even look at Apache Pulsar as the, the second popular Apache project that is doing real-time streaming, they actually now also added a Kafka API that runs Apache Pulsar in the back end. That we were in sort of the first company to realize that there is like, you know, two, two levels to, to the question of like, what is Kafka? Maybe more, but for simplicity, let's do two levels. There's the API, which is that, that protocol, that kind of lingua franca, where there's thousands and thousands of applications and millions of lines of, of enterprise code already written against it. And then there's the implementation. And so I think that you would look for alternate implementations when the upstream project doesn't deliver either on operational complexity or on performance or on data safety, which are sort of the three tenets that we are focusing on. So you've described the Red Panda API is very similar to the Kafka API. Can you talk a little bit more about what the runtime of Red Panda is? Yeah, that's it's always a fun question coming from. <laughs> you know, because I, I when when I started this project, I've been playing around with uh, low latency systems for for a really long time. So I really enjoyed this question. So the the observation that we had in 2019 was okay. 
We need better guarantees for different systems, for different use cases, et cetera, like no data loss and, and super flat tail latencies. So let's, let's build a new storage engine from the ground up. But there's actually a larger overlapping, sorry, overlapping technical observation here, which is Kafka was originally released in 2011 as open source, which means that they were working at LinkedIn on it, I think in 2010, uh, probably the whole year. And if I'm going to tell you kind of the story of streaming and then Red Panda and, and how we fit in together in sort of this larger streaming ecosystem. But over 10 years ago, there's really two, two fundamental hardware changes. And then I'll tell you how streaming sort of overlaps to take advantage of the changes in the real world. Around 2004, the cost per terabyte was somewhere around $2,500 per terabyte. And so fast forward to, to 2011, a big part of building Kafka was actually to leverage cheap hardware and spinning disk. The compute bottleneck in 2010, 2011 was really shoving bytes from the CPU to spinning media, right? And there's like all sorts of scheduling algorithms and like things that people, you know, very sophisticated things that people wrote about it to leverage, you know, spinning disk. If you fast forward uh, 10 years later, the cost per terabyte went down to about $200 per terabyte, right? So over a 10x cost reduction, but even more fundamentally, there were, there were three things that happened in addition to that. One, CPUs actually stopped getting faster. They technically got around 3x faster in the last 10 years. But what happened is that you got then 20 times more cores on a physical computer than you did 10 years ago. So that's a, that's a big physical change in the world. The second one was that the performance, the speed performance to write a single byte to disk went up a thousand times from a spinning disk. So it's a huge, huge performance gap. And then the last one is that networks got much, much better, right? And so you could do now a hundred gigabits per second as opposed to a gigabit per second then. And sort of the initial thoughts and, and sort of the architecture and how the, the runtime differs is that we looked at the real world and we said like, well, what has actually changed in there? Why aren't we getting this performance that, you know, uh, software promises. And where's the gap in performance between what these popular systems give us and what a new system built from the ground up with no code sharing at all, just like Emacs and GCC. <laughs> That's how I started this project. How do we leverage modern hardware to do better? And so the, the runtime that, of how we're built is that we're built upon a concept called the threat per core. And so these concepts are largely borrowed from the financial markets, right? These high frequency tradings back in like, you know, say five or seven years ago, we're using very similar system. Now they use uh, FPGAs and 700 nanosecond per trade, but the architecture of how we build the system is we, we pin a thread per core. And this has significant runtime performance improvements. I'll tell you why. I'm gonna give you first the, the categorical differences and then I'll tell you how they interconnect with each other to deliver a system that is 10x faster on the tail latencies. So the first one is thread per core. So why is this impactful today versus uh, later? The bottleneck in CPU, I mentioned was CPU was, was IO 10 years ago, but actually the modern bottleneck today is the CPU, which means so the cost of sending a message. So let's say now you have a, a motherboard on, on, on your computer and it has two neural domains. So let's say two physical CPU sockets. The cost of sending 
a message between on the same motherboard <laughs> between one CPU and the other CPU is similar to the cost of making a network round trip with like, let's say RDMA to a nearby computer, uh, especially as, as uh, core contention sort of uh, increases. So uh, what this thread per core architecture allows us to do is it allows us to keep, to, to eliminate or you know, alleviate a big part of the pressure of what modern hardware is given software architects and engineers that people aren't leveraging. And the fundamental thing that we could do now that we couldn't do 10 years ago is that we need to focus on uh, CPU as the primary cost to, re to reduce the, the next bottleneck. That is currently the bottleneck in, 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 the storage, uh, in the storage systems, really. And so that's sort of the, the first base, base layer, and which means that uh, cross-core communication is explicit through a network of SPSCQs. Let me pop this up for a second. So that's, that's the base of how we architect the Red Panda. So a thread per core, what that gives us from an application perspective is it gives us cache locality, right? So we start to eliminate some of the compute bottlenecks. The second thing that we did from an architectural perspective is actually trying to bypass the generic Linux scheduler systems, right? And so the, the maybe the most impactful one that will be most clear to anyone that has done streaming with some of these open source projects is the page cache. So when you write a byte, to the Linux to a file to a file using regular like read and write APIs through the Linux kernel, it actually first goes into a cache and buffer management layer, and then when you when you call flush on the file, then it actually makes it to to disk. What we did instead is we bypassed that, that entire and very sophisticated sub subsystem of the Linux kernel, and we we talk it straight to the hardware. So we use uh, DMA to bypass the page cache. Why is that sort of a significant architectural departure from uh, Kafka and similar systems? Is the first one, it gives us predictability. And this actually surfaces through, through products in, in things like fraud detection. And why does it give us predictability? Well, we understand exactly the throughput and latency that a particular NVMe SSD device can give the application. And it allows us to build custom code for this particular use case. So the Linux scheduler, in particular, the page cache algorithm and eviction strategy and so on, is a very sophisticated generic scheduler, right? And so it'll when you read a file, it'll try to read ahead a little bit. When you write a file, it'll do it right behind, which means it'll buffer some things in memory for a little bit before it actually writes them to disk and so on. Because we bypass that entire mechanism, we're able to build the custom fit algorithm to talk straight to the hardware to solve this particular use case of streaming. And so I think those are the two building blocks of how we differ at runtime from the other systems. Now, the easy question for me to ask is, all of that sounds like interesting improvements on Kafka for some use cases, but Unfortunately, it's really hard to get people to use new technology when the old technology works pretty well. Why would you be able to get anybody to use Red Panda? Yeah, so there's basically two two camps. Let's let's talk about I think in in each segment so we can understand why people would use Red Panda and why they do use Red Panda today. So 
on on one end we managed to put by the way all of this complexity and the complexity of zookeeper and kafka into a single binary so we don't need two systems like part of the operational complexity of kafka is that is actually the interaction between three or four components but there is the people that are the, the users that are writing to kafka the interaction between kafka and zookeeper and the users that are consuming from kafka and so what we managed to do is we of course we can't eliminate the consumers and producers so let's leave them out for this discussion but the architectural complexities of running two systems we managed to combine it into one system and so for some people the burden and operational overhead of running two systems that are both difficult to actually run at a scale is good enough to to transition and so i would say those are the classical enterprise use cases and so that's that's one group of users that we handle some are for new use cases that we enable in particular because we're single binary and we're we're super mechanically friendly like we can use very little memory we give predictability we're seeing a lot of use cases that kafka doesn't handle well and frankly a lot of the jvm systems don't handle well which is actually product embedding into iot and edge devices So I mentioned that Kafka as the lingua franca for streaming API, right? So if, so if we decouple again the implementation from the API, people love using the API. And the reason they love it is because you have sophisticated uh client APIs and you have like this entire, you know, richness of ecosystems that you can just download from open source and plug and play and and you can build a really good and sophisticated product with a bunch of open source components so people love that but the runtime overhead of embedding zookeeper and kafka so two jvm systems two different configurations and security settings and all of that on edge computing is cost prohibitive from a computational perspective and so so that's actually an entire new 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 set of use cases that we're seeing in the wild is security appliances embedding us into their applications for doing like you know for recording the logs of like intrusion detection or intrusion prevention i would still say this is on the on the classical side of kafka thing there's and in also that maybe i think that gets most people excited is what are the other things that we do beyond the kafka api so up until this point we've only covered the base <laughs> when you start a company you kind of have to start with an idea and a product so so that's that's what we started but as we've talked to probably 100 enterprise or more right now we've discovered two two new use cases so one was the was the embedding and then the second one was inline wasm and so when you class when when you ask who runs kafka is mostly enterprise users like big enterprise users that either have the money to pay for a large distributed system expert team to run and maintain kafka or you know people that that offset to to a vendor right and and so but generally they have they have kind of a ton of money and so it's the classical big enterprises those are the majority of users that that run kafka what we've discovered is because red panda is so easy to use again it's a single binary the javascript and python community are really welcoming us uh, with with open arms because up until this point if you ask you know maybe less sophisticated users from a technical perspective or people that are actually more interested in solving business problems than running than running infrastructure they're like oh this is great it's as easy to run as nginx and no one really complains from running nginx so i think there's actually an entire market and category of programmers that 
have largely, frankly, been ignored by stream processing uh, technologies. And, you know, I tell you this as someone that built and sold the computational framework to Akamai in 2016, where we were also focused on the large data, the sort of the large enterprises. And so what we stumble upon accidentally <laughs> is that by being so resource friendly on a computing level, we actually open up to you know the the JavaScript and Python community in particular. It's easy. It's it's not JVM. This community really doesn't want to become the distributed system experts. They want a system that just you sort of start and 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 it gets out of the way and it's one binary and you can just do app get install. So that's a large community for us. There are new use cases like embedding and delivering on flat tail latencies for fraud detection. And then there's the classical. Kafka systems that you know we, we also compete. And so I think there's really a lot of motivations for people to, to kind of change over. And that we haven't even covered sort of the, the things that people do once you get started with, with a Kafka API system. And so one of them, the, the immediate question <laughs> that happens is like, once you get data into Kafka, well, how do you get it out of Kafka? Or like, what are the useful things to do with Kafka? And I think we have a particularly need solution where we solve about 60% of streaming use cases, and but we're not sort of trying to solve 100% of the use cases with this particular feature, which is inline Lambda transformations. So what are they? For users that have a relatively small footprint, let's say three, five, seven nodes and so on, which is like, I think almost the majority of the market, when, when you kind of want to do stream processing on top, what happens is you have to stand up a separate system like an Spark streaming cluster or you know, a Kafka streams cluster or Flink uh, cluster and so on. It's the separate hardware, separate configuration profile, separate fault domain to read data from Kafka and for example, save it to Elasticsearch. And so what inline Lambda transformations allows folks to do is that the storage engine, you can upload a little JavaScript function uh, or anything that compiles to WebAssembly to the storage engine and will run this code as data is coming in. And so for use cases that really require uh, flexibility, this is sort of a, a really easy solution to eliminate an entire other system of complexity. And so what are the use cases? The majority of users doing streaming, what they do is you have a JSON object, and you kind of pluck two or three fields. Let's say GDPR compliance is really useful. As an example, you get a JSON object with a bunch of private information, and you want to remove the, the, the social security number, maybe obfuscate the address a little bit or something like that. And then you want to save it back onto another stream for your machine learning people to, to leverage this information. And so currently, as it stands today, folks have to stand up a separate cluster, consume the data, you know, pluck a couple of fields and then save it back into the queue. And so what by having inline stream transformations, people can just upload a simple JavaScript function and then it guarantees that computationally at the storage engine. Two examples that are useful here to drive the, the point. We talked to a food delivery company, they're massive. And what they are prototyping our WASM engine for is actually to guarantee GDPR compliance. And then there's another health provider company. And what they do is they actually want to remove all of the private and identifiable information 
and just simply open up all of the streams from, from their patients. Because for them, what is useful is understanding the symptoms, prognosis, and, and uh, sorry, diagnosis and prognosis of particular treatment in large. And so they just want to do, you know, they want to train their, their machine learning models, but by us, Red Panda, allowing them to send inline stream transformations that do very simple things, again, only like 60% of the use cases, it sort of gives this health provider company streaming compliance. So you can give, we can give their chief security officer computational guarantees that say any data item that goes through this data stream will get processed through this Lambda function. And so you don't have to worry about GDPR compliance because you've sort of solved it structurally with inline Lambda transformations. And as far as we know, we're the only engine that accepts this web assembly, which allows a much richer ecosystem. It, really, any programming language now compiles WebAssembly. And so, so I would say I think those are kind of the where we start to depart away from the classical Kafka installations. Does that help? Uh, that was a great architectural breakdown. One thing I, I do want to point out is I think that Hasn't, hasn't Kafka removed the zookeeper dependency? Yeah, great question. So they are working on a KIP called KIP 500. Super famous. So they, they haven't yet. I think they plan to in 2021. But let's look at sort of the differences between uh, Kafka and Red Panda from a protocol perspective. So this is going to get super nerdy right now, as if it wasn't already. So... P500, what it says is they're going to rewrite the controller, which is a, a, a role within the Kafka ecosystem that handles things like topic creation or topic deletion or, you know, uh, increasing the cluster size and so on. The replication mechanism of the controller is going to be raft. So what that doesn't actually solve is the, the number of fault domains. For small clusters, they will, uh, so, so what does that mean? It means that actually instead of having a single binary, they still have two separate binaries, which means you have two fault domains. So the number of fault domains is, is the same. They, they have improved, you know, sort of the reliability of Kafka by eliminating Zookeeper because then this controller becomes the source of truth rather than the source of truth through the proxy of Zookeeper. And there's a great talk by uh, Colin McCabe, who's I think wrote, wrote Keep 500 on, on QCon San Francisco, where he talks about really the, the low level detail and motivations of this and the particular fault domains that even to this day, by the way, sometimes the only way to get out of a Kafka pickle in terms of a configuration or, or a particular failure semantic is to go into Zookeeper and actually remove the Kafka controller node, right? So there are very, complicated distributed system failures that that will do. What that will not do is it will not solve the two fault domains problems. Like you will have two configurations, even if they read the same configuration, the, the processes is still two, right? And so when you're running in a large cluster, you'll see that the suggestion is to run a separate uh, controller quorum, very similar to how, the, how you would run Zookeeper and then, then regular Kafka. And so I think it's important to understand how systems evolve. They, I'm sure if they had a clean slate, which I had when I was, you know, when I first fired up Emacs in, in 2019, 
I get to learn from a lot of the mistakes that people have made uh, and a lot of the lessons learned and things that they wish to be different because we don't, we didn't have production systems to support in 2019. It was very easy for us to start with a very radical and different architecture. Kafka as an open source project has a much more difficult problem that we'll ever have, which is they have millions and millions of, of, of lines of code that are dependent on the implicit behavior and interactions of the systems. So it's actually not as trivial as saying, oh, they're removing Zookeeper. The actual number of fault domains, which is the thing that matters the most from a distributed system perspective has not changed. And then the last one that I'll add is that now with Kafka, you have two different replication protocols. You have the in-sync replica set protocol, which is called ISR in short, and then you have Raft. When we wrote Red Panda, what we focused on was not to invent our own bespoke protocol like ISR for Kafka. And instead, what we said was, hey, let's use a protocol that has a mathematical proof, Raft, and instead, let's focus our engineering effort in making Raft super fast for both controller and data replication. And so what this uh, gave us as system designers is actually a much smaller system in terms of code footprint and uh, a simpler architecture because we only have one replication protocol and it's a strongly consistent replication protocol. And so, you know, and we actually invite users to check out the code and disclaims we're gonna probably open source next Tuesday. We were gonna open source this Tuesday, but then elections happened. And so <laughs> we, we just kind of like didn't, you know, there's like real important things in the world. So we're like, okay, we'll wait a week and hopefully people will be in a good, a good mental state next Tuesday. So, you know, the, these claims are relatively easy to, to find out uh, for people, but I think that that is sort of an, a, a misconception with PIP 500. People think PIP 500 is gonna solve all of their production systems and, and fault domains. And, you know, it, it will solve some problems for sure, but it's not going to boil the ocean. There's like a very long transition period between Zookeeper and, and the new controller with Raffle application. And then there's also the fact that they didn't remove the whole domains, they just replace the controller with the Raft quorum system. How big is the Red Panda ecosystem? Uh, depends on how you look at it. In terms of, um, so we're, we're still a, a really young company and what we did, we have, this company is, is extremely technical. I am the CEO and I wrote the storage engine with kernel bypass. Every single person in the company, including the salesperson, is has built actually code and systems. And so part of the, the thing that we wanted to release, we only made it publicly available about six, six weeks ago or so, was the first release, we wanted to ensure that we had no data loss. That was the thing that I, I focused on the most. We were like, the architectural is going to allow us to get performance improvement super easily just because we wrote it, you know, and, and we sort of eliminated categorical problems uh, with, with our driver core architecture. But, and, and so, so it's relatively small today because we've only been out for like six weeks. But the fundamental thing that we wanted to give users is it sucks when you have to run a system, someone tells you, and then you lose data. <laughs> you know, that's really like, there's a, an expectation of quality in new infrastructure projects that you sort of just expect them to be rock solid. It's, uh, it's amazing how open source has changed in the last 10 years, really. So 
the, the first release, we, we, we ran actually an, ex, an in, internal extended version of Jepsen, which is an empirical test suite to, guarantee, to ensure that you, in fact, can do the things that your product claims to do with regards to consistency and no data loss. And so we brought on Dennis, who has worked on a lot of extensions on, on Jepsen. And the reason for us extending this was that Jepsen performance, when you, when you evaluate a Jepsen history, is actually n factorial. So computationally speaking, it takes a very long time to evaluate relatively short histories. We're talking about you run the system for two minutes or something like that, and then you, you tear it down, and then you run a history evaluation on, on the logs. And what Dennis has done is he we've like added additional constraints to to Jepsen to allow to reduce the computational complexity from n factorial to linear, big O of n, in terms of evaluating the the, his, the history of this. This was important because it gives us confidence when we go into enterprise conversations. I can go to the CTO and look at it straight in the eye and say like we do not lose data. Here's the proof. Not only did we base ourselves on a protocol that has a mathematical proof around zero data loss, which is Raft, but the empirical implementation and testing shows that we don't lose data. And so for that, we actually waited, man, 20 months or 18 months or something like that to just release the first version. But if you look at as a player in the in sort of the larger streaming ecosystem, then we plug into every single streaming uh, platform that exists because of the Kafka API compatibility. And again, the analogy here was that if we speak, you know, if we were a database, we would speak SQL, but because we're a streaming engine, we speak the Kafka API. Because we speak the Kafka API, just we get to leverage the entire ecosystem. And so transitively, our ecosystem is huge. It's like, if you've written a Kafka application, whether it's in Go using the Sarama or the Confluent Client or in C++ using Liberty Kafka or in Java using the upstream drivers, it, it you know, or in Python using in the, the Python clients, it just, it doesn't matter because we speak the exact same language, then we get to leverage this huge and evolving ecosystem. There was no way that we would be able to rewrite client APIs and client protocols and test them and a bunch of streaming things. So instead, the only thing that we thought was manageable was let's speak this lingua franca through the Kafka API and Therefore, we, we are compatible with the entire Kafka ecosystem 100%. Could you go a little bit deeper on one of the case studies that you've discussed? Yeah. So happy to. We have maybe we have two extremely interesting use cases. The, the first one, I would say, is the intrusion detection system. So we are working with uh, a really large uh, security company. And what they do is that they, they monitor the network traffic. And so once they monitor, what, the way they charge their customers is after they detect anomalies and so on, they write them to, to a durable storage. And they wrote their own storage subsystem and so on. And so when we came in, we actually replaced the, the storage subsystem for them and we just ship the, the binary along as, as part of their installation with, with their application. And so what's really interesting there is that now we're running at the true edge, like literally things that are just almost the first point of contact with the world. As a separate use case, 
was this uh, this wet lab where this medical center uh, that we're talking to is they wanted to do DNA sequencing and a bunch of like wet lab analysis. So wet lab is you basically take your spit and other bodily fluids and, you know, they run some systems and the data of the systems goes into in a Kafka right now. And so because we can go at the speed of hardware, they are thinking about using us to do like live wet lab analysis where before you leave the hospital, they'll tell you, it's like, oh, can you please, you know, can you please go in again and spit again in this too so that we can rerun the analysis because we found a problem or whatever. And the hope there is that that'll basically detect more cancer patients is, is sort of the gist of that. And then the last one from a technical perspective is we talked to a database company and they have this massive, massive data pipes. We're talking about like four gigabytes per second unreplicated. So let's say like the tallest AWS instances, like a hundred gigabits on the I3E and metal instances, right? So huge, huge, huge loads and huge traffic. And the way they thought about the Kafka API in particular with Red Panda with uh, tiered hierarchical storage is that Kafka gives user total log addressability. What does that mean? Every time you save a record to Kafka, you get a uniquely identifiable ID that's called your offset. And that is guaranteed never to have the same ID forever because you know you just add one to the to, to the record batch. And so every time you save an item, then you get one, the next one will be two, three, four, and so on. But from a database pers database perspective, if you treat this write-ahead log as actually a storage engine where you can save, let's say, a megabyte of data for every record batch, then all of a sudden you have this mechanism to fetch and retrieve hierarchical data of a write-ahead log that could span petabytes of data. And so how does this work on a technical level? What happens is people put Kafka on physical computers because that's how software works. These physical computers have some disk limitations, let's say 10 terabytes of disk, or let's say for simplicity of discussion, a terabyte of disk. If you're pushing multi-gigabyte per second workloads, this terabyte of disk is gonna fail in a few hours, right? And so what happens is that with Kafka, there is this assumption that people will consume and dequeue and basically remove the back pressure from the writer by consuming from the log and moving that data out onto a separate system, let's say Elasticsearch or something like that. So what we've done, and, and I think Kafka upstream is also working on something similar, not quite the same, but similar, when instead of deleting data from local disks so that you can keep accepting writes, we can push them to a data lake, let's say most commonly Amazon S3. And so what that does for users is that it effectively unifies historical and real-time access with the same API. The, our addition on top of what some of the classical tiered storage systems have done, which is they just take all data, they put it to S3, and then you never look at it again unless there is a disaster, is that we actually understand the structure because we publish alongside the data, we publish indexing information about the data that we publish to S3. And so it allows us to dynamically fetch for users historical data. And so what this gives us is that we can decouple the clusters that are doing most of the writes from clusters that are doing analytical read-only workloads. And so, 
you know, it's not like really kind of maybe the most famous example of someone that decoupled compute from, from a store. And, and really the architecture, if you read the, the Snowflake papers, is that the cold data lives on S3 and then there's some like front-end compute similar to, to Presto. And so we kind of took that idea and it's like, oh, what if we can just give people the ability to spin up separate clusters on Amazon, but then they could do, they can use the exact same API. So the application code that the machine learning people are doing for doing real-time streaming doesn't have to change, even if they have to reconsume petabytes of data on a separate cluster. And so anyway, so just to wrap up the argument was that these uh, database companies really using us for this tiered storage and this ability to read cold index data in a way that unifies their API. So they can they treat us literally as an infinite write-ahead log with geo distribution. Tell me a little bit more about what you see as the the near near-term future for Red Panda. So our biggest challenges and the things that, that we wanted to work on is you know I always wanted to to release this as as open source and I was scared because I talked to a cloud vendor uh, during the early stages of the company and they told me in person, which I still find a bit cheeky for the record, if we open source this permissively licensed, they would just simply take it because it was a better implementation. And so it took a really long time to understand how do we become a company that allows people to run our infrastructure software, but we can still survive as an infrastructure company, right? Like it's sort of this balance between community building and making money. And so after becoming an expert in this and and I'll I'll note this on the blog post that we're releasing soon, there's really no company that I know that is going to release a very finished product, kind of like what we're doing that is compatible with this reach ecosystem that is also going to be open source. So we're gonna choose a BSL license which is similar to what CockroachDB does. And what that says is really three key things and, and I think three challenges for, for, for Red Panda. The first one, it says we're the only company that can run Red Panda as a service. If you run it as a service, you can either run upstream Kafka or you can pay us and we can work with you. So that's really the first one. So that sort of eliminates you know, the, the hypercloud problem. But it gives users that aren't trying to compete with us on a hosted service, like they can just run, they can run the base. And so with these two primitives, then we can open source the, the code. And even, by the way, even the enterprise features, we're going to make in source available. We're not trying to hide what we do. I think we're going to be, we are internally already a really transparent company, and we want to bring that to, to, to the community as well. And so the next challenge for us is really trying to nurture a community that can coexist in within you know, some of the larger streaming community, in particular with projects that are already using the Kafka API, right? And so it's trying to find this niche, which we think is going to be the JavaScript and Python developers and people that are really looking for just super simple systems to start up, but can allow them to scale to petabyte scale. And so I think that's going to be the focus of the company and the product where we get to coexist in in a larger ecosystem. Of course, we will compete with some users. There's like no doubt about that. But I also think that streaming is so young and so nascent that there's going to be sort of space for multiple projects. And I actually expect a lot more systems to come out with Kafka API compatibility support 
that may offer you know a totally different thing. This is just normal in software evolution. If you think about what happened to the data lake API, right? There's a project called Minio, which does S3 API. There's a Python library, like inside your application, if you need to migrate something, you can just stand up a Python, a uh, little Python server that speaks the S3 API and so on. Once an API becomes popular, I think people will start looking for different guarantees about the particular engines. This happened to, to SQL and all of this rise of from SQL to no SQL to new SQL and so on. And so I think our the, the next steps for us as a community is to invite users uh, to participate and, and sort of create with us. And you know, they could they get to use the product for free, the majority, I think. But it, you know, still leaves room for us as a company to to survive, and I and I think that's going to be challenging in part because we we are creating new territories for a large legion of programmers that aren't doing a streaming because the existing systems are too difficult to operate, and so I think we'll need to understand that it's going to look different. So I'm not sure if the final API for this new community is actually going to be the Kafka API or not. And so I think it's going to be an interesting challenge. It might be the WASM engine where we create a library of components, of open source components, where people can just connect and they can get GDPR compliance with a single click, or you know, they, they connect to Elasticsearch with a single click, or they do all of this with just a single command. You know, it might be that that's how the community develops. So I think for Red Panda, the project is going to be about how do we integrate you know, into the larger streaming community, which is just growing like so fast as the sort of consumers demand real-time components from, from products. You know, the, the fact is this infrastructure is, you know, and engineers are, are a utility function to society, which means the infrastructure that we built is only required because users like you and I vote with their dollars to demand real-time things. We demand that from our phones, we can turn on the oven 30 minutes before we get out of bed if you want to make bread in the morning, right? That kind of real-time interactivity is pressure that we put on companies. Transitively, that pressure gets put onto systems like Red Panda. So, you know, so we'll see how, how this community evolves. I think it's, it's too early and I'm just excited. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you about uh, Red Panda. Thanks, Jeff. Talk to you soon.